Hey, it's Jody Butts, and welcome to At Risk. Most of us have only known a strong America. We've seen it stumble for sure, but somehow America has always turned weakness into strength. Her flaws, nothing more than further inspiration for its unrelenting journey towards a more perfect union. But today, today there could be an entire section of the library dedicated to its demise, and not without good reason. To better understand the state of the union and what it might take to improve the outlook, we turn to Canada's former ambassador to the United States, David McNaughton. David has led a multi-decade career in Canadian politics, including serving as a key member of the Canadian team that renegotiated the North American Free Trade Agreement. Join us as we peer through the fog of bots, conspiracies, and factions to find the makings of a better tomorrow for America and for us all. Thank you for joining me, David, and welcome to At Risk. Well, good to be here. So, David, there is much written about America's demise. Stephen Marsh has published a book uh, warning uh, people that uh, America might descend into civil war. Uh, there's also Jonathan Haidt in The Atlantic. Uh, he describes uh, American politics as ridiculous and dysfunctional, and he sees no hope for it improving. What's your take? Well, I mean, I agree with all of the above in the sense that it is ridiculous and it is uh, quite depressing. The only thing I would say is that, you know, people have written off America many times before, um, whether it be economically or whether it be, you know, politically and somehow or other, there is a resilience in that country, which is really quite amazing. And so, you know, I, I continue to hope that somehow or other they are going to come out of this funk that they're in at the present moment. Um, but I must confess that it is it is quite depressing watching it. What did you learn from the NAFTA experience? Were, were there any nuggets of hope uh, embedded in that experience? Well, there were um, in the sense that notwithstanding uh, what, you know, the president of the time, Donald Trump, uh, was saying, you never knew what he was going to do next, other than the fact that um, he had this view of any negotiation, which was uh, the most important thing was that he won any negotiation or was seen to win any negotiation. And even as important was that you were seen to lose. So, um, you had to man we had to manage him during this whole process. But during it, there were, you know, signs of light and support and rationale and everything else. Some of it, some of it was at the state level with governors. Um, some of it was actually within Congress, both the, the House and, and the Senate, um, on both sides of the aisle. I mean, we had um, I remember oh, three or four weeks before we ended up um, doing the NAFTA deal, I got a call from um, two senators, one Republican, one Democrat, Rob Portman and Amy Kobuchar, 
who said, we really want uh, to see whether we can, we can help in terms of getting this across the finish line. And, and they brought eight Democrats, eight Republicans over. We had dinner at the embassy um, and they were, you know, genuinely interested in seeing, um, you know, what it was that was important to us, how we could get this uh, NAFTA deal done. Um, and, uh, you know, there were, there were both Republicans and Democrats who were really quite sensible and sane, notwithstanding the kind of craziness that was coming out of the White House. What was interesting about Jonathan Haidt's piece was that he sort of placed blame hitting both the left and the right equally. Um, do you do you think that's true, or do you think one side suffers more from uh, the the I guess the cancer of factions? Well, I, th- I think both both sides. Uh, I mean, one could argue whether at any given time, uh, you know, the right is um crazier than the left but you know i saw i saw a statistic that was that came out of the mid uh 1990s where it sort of identified on a whole variety of issues who was um sort of on the extreme left and who was on the extreme right in congress and what percentage that uh represented and and at the time it was sort of you know, 15% on one side and 15% on the other. And then, you know, fully more than two thirds of the, of the Congress was somewhere in the middle. It was sort of, you know, could go either way on any given issue and everything else. And then they showed um, the same sort of uh, methodology in 2018. And, you know, it was more like, 40% 40% on either side and then 20% in the middle. I mean, it was really quite stark what had happened. So, so I think it had been a trend which, it, which had been going on for some time. Um, and I think it's just been exacerbated in part because of, you know, the Trump factor, um, but also on the left, you've got the AOC and Bernie and, you know, the, that that crowd that are just as extreme on the left as they are on the right. Um, and so it's it's kind of a depressing. And then social media, I think, is um, exacerbating the splits because people tend to go to, you know, hear things or read things that reinforce their own uh, predisposition, their biases. Yes, I think that's absolutely right. And it makes me wonder when you see, uh, you know, a senator, whether they're red or blue, um, espouse some of these conspiracy theories. Is that just mugging for the cameras or mugging for social media? Or in your experience, do some of these folks really believe this stuff? Well, some of them do. um, But I would say by and large, it is all about, um, you know, getting reelected, staying, keeping their jobs. I mean, if you look at, um, you know, this, you know, the Ohio Senate race and, and, and Trump supporting J.D. Vance, and here's this, this guy, Vance, who 2016 was leading the anti-Trump forces, wanted to reform the Republican Party to take the, the 
the radical elements out of it. And now he's just jumped on the bandwagon. And, and, and you know, I, I, I used to deal a fair bit with Senator Ron Johnson of Wisconsin, who, you know, a former business person who, you know, I found to be remarkably rational during the, the whole, um, uh, you know, NAFTA debate, particularly since Trump was so focused on dairy and Wisconsin and all that kind of stuff. And now he's out there, you know, espousing all sorts of wacky kind of ideas and conspiracy theories about voter fraud or, or, you know, vaccines or, you know, high, you know, any of these, these, these sort of crazy treatments of COVID. I mean, it's, uh, it's really quite depressing. It really is. Um, what does this all mean for the midterms? Well, I think if you look at the at the most recent polls, there's no question that that Biden is in trouble. The Democrats are in trouble. Um, you know whether or not uh, you know how how I think they're going to lose the House. I guess the question really is what's going to happen in the Senate because there are more Republicans that are up than there are Democrats and. You know, we're still, it's still only April and the election is not till November. So there's a lot that could happen. But, um, you know, I don't, I just don't see the mood getting any better. The, the, the Republicans are clearly focused on, um, you know, winning, winning control. And then, of course, you're going to, all you're going to have is two years of complete paralysis, even, you know, even under the, under the current situation with the Democrats uh, having control of the Senate and the House, not much has happened. So, um, you know, it's a it's uh, it's a pretty worrisome thing. And I and I think the other thing, and this is, you know, we we just we we sort of take democracy for granted. Um, and you know, I think what what recent events have shown us is that. You, you can't do that. And, and I think we're, we've lived through this remarkable period of relative um, peace and stability and, and, and prosperity. Um, and it's all coming unstuck at the present moment. And I'm not sure that um, that that isn't going to uh, make the extremes more extreme. Um, so while I continue to hope for the best, I, I just, it, it's an extraordinarily worrisome thing um, to see what's going on in America. Do you think there might be a crisis of legitimacy around the midterm results? Sure. I mean, you know, this, 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 all this business of um, stop the steal in the last election and and some of the uh, the measures that are being introduced in um, some of the the you know the state legislatures and and just the general questioning of um, the the general questioning of the legitimacy of the last election, um, I think will will lead to whomever loses um, questioning whether or not it wasn't rigged or stolen or whatever you want to. However, you want to, you know, describe it, which is, which is really, you know, not just unfortunate, but, but really quite dangerous.
So you mentioned that you thought perhaps we have been taking democracy uh, for granted. So just putting a citizen hat on, how do we not take democracy for granted? Or is this something that institutions have to do? Is there a role for the individual in better nurturing our democracy? Yeah, I, well, I, th I think one of the things that, um, you know, we need to continue to do um, is to encourage good people to run for public office. And while I say that, um, you know, you, you, when you look at uh, the abuse that people who stand on principle um, when they're elected and, and, and actually aren't just there in order to say whatever they need to say to get reelected. Um, you know, it's not just a matter of having thick skin. It's also the kinds of things that you subject your family to and everything else. I mean, you look at, you know, Mike Pence, you know, people and Republicans saying hang Mike Pence and, you know, kill Dr. Fauci and God knows what else. And I, I just, but, but, but it is really important for good people to, to decide that, that uh, public service is an important part of keeping our democracy. Because if, if all you do is you leave it up to um, sort of career politicians whose uh, major objective in life is to keep, keep their position in cabinet or keep their position in caucus or whatever it is, then we are going to des descend into chaos faster than, than one would normally expect. Uh, but that's a tall order to get people to decide to run. Yeah, let alone get them elected, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, I, 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 do, I do think, though, that, you know, I still have, perhaps it's, it's a, an overly optimistic view of the world, but I still think that telling the truth, um, even if it's uncomfortable, um, that there is a large constituency for that even today. And, and I think that, you know, pandering to, um, to people in order to get elected is, is, a is a mistake. Now, you know, um, it obviously works uh, in many cases, the, 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 you know, negative advertising, finding wedges to drive between people. I mean, it's all part of the, the, uh, the, the, the playbook for people who run campaigns. But I do think that there's an opportunity to actually tell the truth and, and, and speak the truth to the public and have them um, understand, particularly when, you know, things are obviously uh, going to be unsettled for some time. We're going through massive, um, you know, transition, both, you know, in terms of the energy situation, but also now the geopolitical, um, you know, scene where, many of the institutions that we relied on since the Second World War are clearly not working anymore. And there's going to have to be a sort of a recalibration of what it means to be 
to have, you know, multilateral organizations that make any sense. I think that's right. I spoke with Jens Orbach. Uh, he leads the Global Challenges Foundation, and they go through this annual exercise of cataloging all of the catastrophic risks the world faces. And, you know, when I pressed him about like, okay, so those are the risks, you know, how, how do we meet the challenge uh, of those risks? And it was things like, you know, nuclear arms, catastrophic earthquakes, uh, climate change events, you know, his response was governance. And that sort of feels a little bit like, like a letdown, but, you know, multilateralism, that type of cooperation and the puts and the takes it when when our challenges don't respect borders it's it's hard to believe that solutions can be found within them so what in your experience in terms of that multilateralism because obviously NAFTA is an agreement be, between three countries what what made that come together and is there something that that, that we can replicate in terms of how we mount responses to some of these very, very large problems? Yeah, I mean, I look, I think that the the NAFTA situation was was a bit unique in that, um, you know, we had an awful lot, Canada had an awful lot to lose. It was really a an existential threat to our economy, our people's jobs, communities, everything else. And so, um, you know, we had to figure out in a, you know, 72% of our exports go to the United States. We had to figure out how to um, make it in the U.S.'s interest to do a deal with us that was acceptable, um, that, that was good for us, and that they felt was good for them. Um, and that was a bit of a challenge, although... What, what happened in Canada was uh, for the first time in certainly a long time, probably in my, my living memory, uh, we had a huge amount of cooperation, you know, federal, provincial, private and public. I mean, people got, came together um, in, in a way which, I, as I say, I haven't seen before. And um, I think that's a lesson for us in Canada, which is, you know, we're, we're facing a really, really challenging external environment. And we simply can't afford to have the kind of backbiting and small um, kind of nasty politics that is evidenced in the United States. They may be able to get away with it for a while. We can't. And so... Well, it's totally legitimate to have differences of opinion and to voice those. It, it, it should not become personal and, and we should find areas where there is consensus and focus in on those and, and, and make them work for us. In terms of the multilateralism on other things, I mean, I, I just think that what you're going to have more often than not um, in the future is um, coalitions of the willing um, as opposed to permanent institutions. So, you know, the UN has become pretty dysfunctional. Uh, you know, you've got the Security Council with China and the US and Russia with vetoes, so nothing can happen of any consequence. Uh, you know, we had a, a period where I think 
Libya was the chair of the UN Human Rights Commission, uh, you know, just absurdities like that. And, and, and I faced it when I was in the US when we were trying to deal with uh, the Venezuelan situation where uh, as a result of uh, Maduro's actions, there were uh, over 2 million uh, Venezuelans who fled the country because they were starving to death and they put huge pressure on uh, the social, social systems in countries like Colombia. And we couldn't effectively deal with um, the Venezuelan situation through the Organization of American States because anytime we wanted to do something, Mexico would veto it because they had a very strong view that they should not intervene in anybody else's affairs. And so the, we, we put together this Lima group, which was a group of South American countries and Canada that were uh, of the same mind as to how to deal with the Venezuelan situation. And, and I think you've seen some of that um in in the response to the russian invasion of ukraine um well yes nato has been playing a role of sorts um on sanctions you even had countries like switzerland join in on sanctions which i just you know kind of s s certainly surprised me um and so so i think that's what's going to happen is that as we as we go through um some of these major geopolitical um, challenges that we face, that it's gonna be a group of countries that have a real interest in making something happen rather than stopping something from happening. At least I hope that's the way it is. Um, you'll see the same thing on climate. Uh, I think you're gonna see a lot of this when, um, when in the next couple of years, there's gonna be a real food crisis happening and and you know maybe it'll go through the un i think there's going to be a lot of this um coalitions of the willing who are going to um who, who are going to do multilateral things where where it is in their common interest to do so well i like that answer that that's very optimistic and you know i think there's a lot of truth to it too um so no country is immune uh, to the forces of polarization. Uh, the Conservative Party here in Canada is seeking a new leader. Um, what do you think is going to happen uh, in that race? And some describe it as the importation of uh, Trumpian politics. Do, do you see it that way? And what, what do you think that the future holds uh, for that party and, and our democracy? Well, there's no question that, um, <laughs> that, 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 that at least one or two of the candidates have adopted um, a lot of the Trump playbook. Um, and then there are other candidates who are trying to talk about big tents and 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 the like you know it'll be interesting to see what happens i i i don't know um how it's going to turn out i mean in part those kinds of races aren't necessarily about um who has the biggest crowds or or who gets the most um hits on social media but but oftentimes it's the organizational factor, like who can 
sign up to most memberships and, and you have to understand what the rules are and they've got this preferential ballot and there's a lot of candidates. So, so I think it's, um, it's a little bit early to, uh, to call that, but there's no question that some of the tactics that are being employed and some of the approaches look ominously similar to, uh, to US politics. And, and, and whether or not if that, if that prevails, whether or not that is the best strategy for the Conservative Party in terms of electing a government, um, I, I wouldn't have thought so, but, but um, you know, in today's politics, who knows? Yeah, they're definitely harder to predict. There's, there's no doubt about that. Um, what about the confidence and supply agreement between the federal liberals and the NDP? Uh, some people look to that agreement um, with enormous optimism that it's a proof point that polarization doesn't win the day every day. How do you, how do you see things? Good news out of that particular agreement is that, you know, it takes the certain amount of the uncertainty out of the Canadian political situation allows for the government to, um, you know, to have a longer view rather than simply, you know, what's what, what's happening in the House of Commons this week or, um, you know, what's dominating the media or whatever. Um, I mean, I guess, I guess my own um, concern over the, the agreement is, is just a reflection of my own view of where we are at the present moment. And that is that, well, it was understandable that the government needed to spend a lot of money to support um, businesses and individuals during, um, during COVID. And, and COVID has lasted a lot longer than people anticipated. Uh, we are going to have to try to figure out how we can actually um, begin to manage the, the level of debt that we have, and particularly as interest rates um, are going to go up, that you do not want to have a big chunk of your expenditures every year um, taken up by servicing your debt, uh, whether you're an individual or a government. So, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm reasonably optimistic that that the government's going to uh, try to focus on making sure that we have um, growth, that it's inclusive growth and that kind of thing. But, 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 you know, I do worry a little bit about whether or not we're going to be able to, with the best of intentions, manage the fiscal challenges that we've got. I mean, we, we ran into problems back in the late 1980s, early 1990s, and then got ourselves adjusted because there was a crisis. And then, you know, I, I do worry that we're headed down that path a little bit at the present moment. But it's, um, the, the most recent budget, I think, was, was, uh, was trying to, to select that balance of of growth, of dealing with the social inequities in our society, and also not um, sort of blow our brains out from a debt point of view. So we'll see how they, they manage to, to deal with that. 
So whether it's the United States or Canada, I think there is a at least a bit of an imperative to do politics differently. And and you've been engaged in politics for for decades. Do you think politics is being executed differently today, or or do you have any thoughts on where it needs to go in in this low trust faction environment? Well, I had the really good fortune um, to go and work for a cabinet minister in Ottawa right out of university. Um, and, and I'll never forget uh, one of the things that he told me when I joined his office. And, and you know, he was the minister of transport. He was from Newfoundland. There were, he was the only liberal. There were six conservative members from Newfoundland. And he said to me, um, you know, when those members call my office, I want you to treat them with all of the respect that you would treat any liberal member. Because if you treat them badly, they have been elected by the people of Newfoundland. And what you're saying by treating them badly is that you don't respect the people who voted them in. And, and I, I never forgot that. I mean, it, it, he also added, now, you know, at election time, we'll kick the shit out of them. Uh, but but <laughs> but in between in between elections, it was it was, you know, treat them with respect and and because because the people have elected them. And I think, you know, I've, I've always remembered that I've always tried you know, in in my, um, you know, interaction with with members of, you know, all parties to um not not to be shrill or 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 try to find differences but to try to find common elements to try to build consensus and at election time work hard to defeat them and get uh, more of our members elected i think that's missing at the present moment it's kind of every and you can see it in in the sort of gotcha politics that goes on all the time. And so why, why don't we try and find something um, that we're going to be able to pillory the opposition about? And, and, and I, as I say, you know, earlier, I, I, I just don't think that that is, that that will not uh, sustain our democracy for the long term. And I don't know how we change that. Um, I would hope uh, that it doesn't disintegrate any further than it is, but but the, there are certainly worrying signs. And um, and I think that the, the, the notion that somehow or other, because you're a member of a different party or, you know, you're not, you don't, you don't, uh, it, it used to be even not that long ago, that, that members of, of different parties used to get together and socialize. It happened in DC and it happened in Ottawa and they don't do it anymore. There's no, there's none of that. It's not, you don't know who the, you know, what their families are like, what kinds of challenges they're facing. That needs to change. And hopefully it will, maybe we're just going through a bad patch right now, but it is a bad patch. Yes, indeed. And, you worry that some of it is systemic, i.e. it's the social media 
environment. It's the use of analytics and bots. I had yeah. this great conversation uh, with Andrew Potter, where he wrote a book called On Decline. And he argues that that we put too much at the at the feet of leaders when there's so much about the system and environment that drives the the poor behaviors. Um, and, you know, I, I agree with a lot of that, but I still think there is that role for, for the individual. And I always ask myself, maybe it's not the prime minister who, who probably has enough on his or her plate to try and lead that change, but who can we possibly look to, to, to try and change that culture a bit and get back to handshakes uh, across the aisle? Well, you know, we, we, we were talking earlier about um, the U.S. system. And as I say, I, I found um, in traveling around the United States when I was ambassador that there was um, an awful lot more of that kind of collaborative um, spirit at the state level um, that you would have. In some cases, you had uh republican governors and democrat uh legislatures and and vice versa um and and they were focused on on getting things done because they had to um and i and i guess that's deteriorated a little bit i mean you see it in desantis in in florida um who's kind of adopted who's become sort of full-on trump um and even you know, Abbott in Texas, who, you know, I thought was a fairly reasonable guy to deal with. Um, but, um, I, you know, I, I don't know, I don't know where you're going to, if, if it isn't coming from the leadership, um, it's hard, it's hard to imagine um, how you get it from, from other people. I mean, it's like, I was, we were talking about this the other day about, um, you know, why it is that um, much of the bureaucracy in, and I'm not just talking about Ottawa, I'm talking about all public sector bureaucracies at the present moment are focused on process rather than outcomes. And, and I think the reason for that is, in large measure, they look at who has been successful, who's risen to be deputy minister and whatever. And it's mostly people who, you know, stayed out of trouble, who haven't taken any risks, who, you know, kind of <laughs> go along to, to get along. And, and, and so they, they kind of why would you, if you see that, why would you want to try and take risks? And I think the same thing applies in politics. If what you see is the leaders are people who are, um, you know, focused on division, focused on hard line, whether it be left or right, the people who are successful are the ones who, you know, belittle their um, opponents, then it's hard to expect aspiring um people going into public life to say well i'm not going to do that i really would rather try to take the risk of of uh taking a different path i mean it, it takes an exceptional person to actually do that so 
I, I don't I don't want to be talking myself into depression here, but but I must say that most <laughs> of the signals that we see are not exactly what I'd describe as positive. No, it's true. There are some positives, and I try and remind myself of that in the sense, if you know on the one hand that algorithms amplify the negative, that means mentally you have to latch on to the positive in almost as an exaggerated way. So I often am talking to myself about you know, the level of community uh, that was demonstrated and came together uh, during the pandemic. Um, the fact that while the pandemic highlighted a lot of inequities, it also fundamentally highlighted how much we kind of need each other. Like we need to break bread together and we need to be in rooms together and things, you know, like Zoom are uh, a poor substitute all the time, that there's value in in being together. Um, so I don't know if that requires a new social media platform or, 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 or what it's going to take, but uh, it's certainly good to speak with you and to, to gather your thoughts. And let me take this opportunity to thank you for your service. I, I mean, nobody... Nobody expected your time as ambassador to uh, be so fraught politically uh, in in the United States. So you don't always get what what you sign up for. So so thank you for that. Well, thank you. It was um, it, it was a wonderful experience, uh, notwithstanding the fact that it was you know difficult and both physically and mentally. But you don't you don't often get an opportunity to um, play a role that you that at a time when it's important and 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 to try to do your best um, to help you know your country and I, I what I one of the interesting things that I found during that whole thing was you know we were constantly I was constantly learning about um, how important some of these arrangements were for individual communities for you know workers and farmers and you know just regular people depended on the fact that we had a form of uh reasonably open trade with the united states and and you know making a miscalculation could cost people their livelihood and it was you know it was a real you know sense of responsibility and um, and I, I was very happy and, and very pleased of all the, the support that we had from the public service, from politicians right across the country, from labor leaders, from, you know, the business community. It was, it was really a wonderful experience. So I wouldn't trade it for anything. <laughs> no pun intended, right? <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 that's right. And, 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 you know, I think you're, you're right about um, some promising things have come out of COVID and, and, you know, that sense of um, community and, you know, leaning on each other to, to help out. I, I, I do think that that spirit, if there's, if there's a positive, I think that's what it is, is that, you know, perhaps we'll realize that 
we need we need each other we need the kind of uh, support that comes from uh, working together even when you have differences of opinion so well that is the appropriate note to end on <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much david i really appreciate your joining me and sharing all of your great insights gathered over a multi-decade career in successful politics thanks good to talk to you Joey.